Good morning. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm actually going to be in some different passages this morning, so you might want to open to Ephesians 2 and also have a, a finger in John chapter 3. So this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a, a, a new intermittent uh, sermon series that I'll weave into and out of uh, in the midst of the other things that we're doing, such as the book of Genesis. And uh, this, this sermon series is called Neglected Doctrines. And uh, th- this sermon series has, has come about in recognition of, of the, the fact that as I look out at the evangelical church in America generally, I see certain really important doctrines that tend to be neglected or undervalued, and I want to call attention to those doctrines and help us to be rooted in them. Uh, four, four men served as keynote speakers at an evangelism conference in the late 1990s. By the time that those conference talks were turned into a book a couple of years later, one of the keynote speakers had left the ministry and had walked away from his wife and family. This man, along with a number of other prominent evangelical ministers over the last 25 years, have made a shipwreck of their faith. Hundreds of people respond to an invitation to receive Christ at the end of an evangelistic message. Three years later, it's all fizzled out except for a handful who are pressing on to know the Lord. A generation of young people grow up in the same church and receive the same instruction and are involved in the same activities. Twenty years later, half are still walking with the Lord, and half are nowhere to be seen. Why? Why is it that there are so many people who, who've had close contact with the Christian faith, but e- e- even to the point of professing to believe in Christ and even attempting to serve Him, who sooner or later throw on the towel and live the remainder of their lives as unbelievers. There are, there are a number of legitimate biblical answers to that question, but one legitimate explanation is that in many cases such people were never born again in the first place. And that's the neglected doctrine that I want to talk about this morning, the necessity of regeneration, of being born again by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would shine the light of your word into our hearts, that we might understand, that we might be convicted, strengthened, and transformed by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray for any who are in this sanctuary or who may be listening online 
who are outside of Christ at this very moment. I pray that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In his name we pray, amen. First, let me, uh, let me give a definition of regeneration. Regeneration is God's sovereign work of imparting spiritual life to a spiritually dead sinner, thereby turning that spiritually dead sinner into a living saint. Before regeneration, the dead sinner was repelled by God and disobedient to God. After regeneration, the living saint is drawn to God and obedient to God. Although the biblical words that are used to describe regeneration are more important than the English word, nevertheless, the English word regeneration is worth understanding. The prefix re means again, and the word generation has to do with generating, making, or creating. So the verb regenerate means to create again or to create anew unless one is born again, regenerated, created anew. He cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3, 3. As we shall see, Scripture uses a number of different terms to describe the reality of regeneration, but at the outset, we simply need to understand that regeneration is God's sovereign work of remaking a wretched sinner into a beautiful son or daughter of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Second, I want to talk about the, the background of regeneration. Before we can grasp the beauty of God's regenerating grace, we first need to grasp the depth of humanity's depravity for which regeneration is the answer. In order to appreciate the weightiness of this doctrine, we must first come to terms with the weightiness of our sin. The first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2 clearly set forth the deadness and corruption of man's sinful heart. Paul is writing to Christians who had already experienced God's transforming grace. In Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, Paul tells these Christians what they were like before they were captured by God's grace. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What was true of these Christians before they were arrested by divine grace is true of all human beings who have not yet encountered God's grace. The unconverted are dead in their sins. They are physically and psychologically alive. They have thoughts and emotions and motivations and bodily activities, but they are spiritually dead. They are alive to sin, but dead to God. They are alive to unrighteousness, but dead to holiness. They are alive to the devil, but dead to the Holy Spirit. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, Ephesians 4.18. They walk in trespasses and sins. They follow all the wrong things. They let the, world, the, the, the world's sinful system set their agenda. They are under the controlling influence of satanic power and deception. They implement their own unruly passions and desires. The unconverted are, by nature, children of wrath. The phrase, by nature, points to the fact that ever since mankind fell into sin, the starting point for all human beings is a world of sin under the judgment of God. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were by nature children of blessing. After Adam and Eve were created, God blessed them, Genesis 1.28. But after Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they plunged themselves and their descendants into spiritual darkness. Since then, every human being is born into a world of sin and is a world of sin. Every human being, except for our Lord Jesus Christ, is a world of sin. And as such, every human being exists under the judgment of God and is always ripening towards the judgment and wrath that will be poured out on the unconverted at the final judgment. That is the terrible predicament that every human being is in unless God plucks you from it. Now, it should be obvious from Paul's description that there is nothing any human being can do to rescue himself from the mess that he is in. I say that it should be obvious because Paul uses the word dead, dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The spiritually dead have no ability to make themselves spiritually alive. Dead people cannot resurrect themselves. Dead people cannot turn themselves into paragons of moral virtue. Only someone who, has a lot, who is alive, only someone who is alive and who has the ability to impart life to a dead person can make a dead person live. The same point about mankind's inability to rescue itself can be observed in other passages. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are, that's from Romans 3. How in the world do people who have no heart for God, no fear of God, no understanding of God's ways and no love for God's righteousness actually get a heart for God? People who don't have a heart for God are not good candidates for giving themselves a heart for God. People who have a natural bent towards sin are not good candidates for giving themselves a new and holy disposition. We read these sobering words in Jeremiah chapter 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil, Jeremiah 13, 23. Of course, the Ethiopian could put a layer of paint on his skin if he wanted to. And a leopard could layer itself with mud if it rolled around in the mud for a few hours. 
Likewise, sinners can plaster their external appearance with religiosity and moral facade, but just as a man cannot change the fundamental nature of his skin, and just as a leopard cannot change the fundamental nature of its spots, so a sinner cannot change the fundamental nature of his wickedness. The unconverted are dead to sin, enslaved to sin, in love with their sin, blind to the light of the gospel, and the wonderful message of the cross seems like foolishness to them. So if any of the dead are to come alive, if any of the enslaved are to be set free, if any of the blind are to gain their sight, if any of the foolish are to become wise, then God must do the saving. That's the background of regeneration. Now as you're Flipping over to John chapter 3, we'll come back to Ephesians 2, but as you're flipping over to John chapter 3, let's discuss the, the, the necessity and nature of regeneration. These could have been separate points, but they come together in John 3, so we'll keep them together. The necessity and nature of regeneration. When I say that regeneration is necessary, I mean two things. First, I mean that regeneration is necessary because your natural sinful condition is that bad that depraved and that hopeless. You will either be regenerated or you will remain wretched forever. The second thing I mean when I say that regeneration is necessary is that regeneration is necessary in order to enter into and see and enjoy God's kingdom of grace. The path to heaven goes through the delivery room called regeneration. The many paths that avoid that delivery room all end up in the same place hell. Those are sobering words, and I don't say them lightly. Now, regarding the necessity of regeneration as the prerequisite to entering God's kingdom, we can do no better than Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus was a Jew, an Israelite, a descendant of Jacob. Not enough. Nicodemus was a Pharisee which means that he was part of a Jewish holiness movement that emphasized righteousness and ritual purity rules. Not enough. Nicodemus was an influential leader. He's called a ruler in verse 1. He's called the teacher of Israel in verse 10. Not enough. Somewhere along the way, you may, may have seen a bumper sticker that says, born okay the first time. The truth, however is that no sinful human being is born okay the first time. Not even a privileged Jew like Nicodemus. Unless you are born a second time, unless you experience spiritual birth, you cannot enter into God's kingdom. 
Now, even as Jesus presses upon Nicodemus the necessity of regeneration, he also highlights the nature of regeneration. The phrase born again in verses 3 and 7 can also be rendered born from above. In either case, the phrase points to spiritual birth that is something other than physical birth. Physical birth is our first birth, a birth that takes place in the natural realm. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Spiritual birth is a second birth, a birth that takes place in the spiritual realm. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now the phrase born again in verse 3 is further explained by a parallel statement in verse 5, the phrase being born of water and the Spirit. To be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. And the reference to water and the Spirit invites us to go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, where spiritual birth is described for us in terms of water and the Spirit. Now, before I read, the, uh, th- read three verses from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, keep in mind that, that those words were spoken to an unclean people whose lives were characterized by evil ways, iniquities, and abominations. Such people cannot cleanse and renew themselves. Instead, the cleansing and renewing must be done to them. And to such people, the Lord says in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spiritual birth described here in Ezekiel 36 involves at least three facets. First, the sinner is cleansed from his sin, uncleanness, and idolatry. Water symbolizes this cleansing, but the reality is that the sinner is washed from his filth. Second, the sinner is given a new heart. This is nothing less than a spiritual heart transplant. The old stony heart that was stubborn and hard and unresponsive to God's word is removed and it is replaced with a new heart that is soft and tender and malleable and teachable. Third, the sinner is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers the cleansed man with a new heart to walk in obedience. That is the new birth. That is what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. You are washed clean of all the accumulated gunk and filth from your many years in vanity and pride. You are given a new heart, and instead of being led astray by the prince of the power of the air, the unholy spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience, now you are led into true obedience by God's Holy Spirit who is at work in his regenerated people. Some people mistakenly think that they have to get religious in order to be acceptable to God. Some people mistakenly think that they have to clean themselves up in order to have God's favor. Some people mistakenly think that they have to do this or do that, go to church and give money, pray a lot and read your Bible more, keep many rules and check many boxes, be a good neighbor and treat others well in order to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And all of that is so much rubbish. To be a citizen of God's kingdom, you've got to be born 
into God's kingdom. Unconverted people don't need any of the religiosity. Unconverted worldly people don't need any of it, and unconverted church-going people don't need any of it. Instead, you need something that is completely outside of your control to happen to you. Just as you cannot control the wind, the wind blows where it wishes, John 3, 8, so you cannot control the Spirit. But what you need is for the Holy Spirit to birth you into God's kingdom. Don't clean yourself up. You need God to cleanse you. Don't try to reform your old stubborn heart. You need a new heart. You know what, you know what man-made religion is? Man-made religion is men with that old stony heart trying to do the best they can to get into the transcendent. And it, it always goes badly. You know what politics is? Politics is meant, man-made politics is men with an old stony heart trying to make life work for everybody. And it never goes well. You don't need a reformation of your old nature. You need a new nature. Don't try to manufacture obedience in your own strength. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you for obedience. And if you respond to all this by saying, what you are saying right now is making me feel desperate, my response is, great. <laughs> the predicament that an unconverted man is in is not only desperate, it's impossible. When the disciples were exceedingly astonished in the Gospel of Mark at Jesus' statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they, the disciples were astonished and they asked Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus didn't reply by saying, well, as a matter of fact, many people can be saved, all the ones who aren't weighed down with wealth. That's not, that's not the answer he gave. He said, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It is impossible for men to bring themselves into the realm of salvation, but it is not impossible for God to rescue sinners from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this brings us to the, the fourth point, which is to identify and glorify the doer of regeneration. I've, I've already called attention to it, but I want to really camp there for a little bit. Who is the doer of regeneration? And the answer is the triune God alone. God is the one who performs the act of regeneration. Before we return to Ephesians 2, just consider the other two passages that we just looked at. The very teaching in John chapter 3 that we must be born again should make it obvious that this is not something that we do. We, we, don't, we don't give birth to ourselves. When it comes to physical birth, we don't birth ourselves. We, aren't, we are born. D.A. Carson makes a comment on this. He says, the child about to be born does not make a commitment to come out of his mother's womb. It's not how birth works. Likewise, when it comes to spiritual birth, we don't birth ourselves. We are born again. We are birthed by another. We are brought forth. And the background to John 3 and Ezekiel 36 confirms this line of thought when God says, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. And the same truth is taught in Jeremiah chapter 31, a well-known passage that describes the new covenant. One of the promises of the new covenant is directly related to regeneration. When God says, 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. That's just another way of describing the heart transformation that regeneration is. The disobedient heart that resists God's word and suppresses God's truth and breaks God's commandments is only overcome by the unilateral action of God upon the heart. God writes his law upon the heart of his people so that God's law is now internalized, delighted in, understood and kept. When God inscribes his law on a human heart, that heart is thereafter drawn to and delights in his inscripturated word. The objective inscripturated word in the scriptures resonates with the instruction of God, the law of God that is written on the believer's heart. Now, Ephesians 2. Back to Ephesians 2. Verse, we're going to look at verse 4. Remember, remember uh, verse 1 tells us that people, before they encounter God's grace, are dead in their trespasses and sins, and dead people are incapable of making themselves alive. So after explaining the deadness and utter, utter lostness of mankind in verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul celebrates God's grace in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I'm not going to read this, but if you go back to Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul celebrates the triumphant power of God on display in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the bodily, physical resurrection. And one day... Believers will will share in the glory of physical resurrection. But the point in Ephesians 1 and again here in Ephesians 2 is that the same power that that raised Jesus from the dead bodily, that same power is at work raising sinners from the dead spiritually so that we are made alive with Christ. And this gift of new life is the expression of God's grace. By grace you have been saved, verse 5. Dead people not only are unable to make themselves alive, but they are also unable to force God's hand or earn God's favor. People who are enthralled with the world's idol factories, enslaved to their own sinful passions, and animated by the prince of demons, can do nothing to make themselves attractive, attractive to God. The good news of the gospel is not that mankind is lovely and worthy of salvation. That's not the good news. The good news of the gospel originates in the heart of God. He is rich in mercy, verse 4. He loves with great love, verse 4. And he acts according to grace, verse 5. Therefore, because of the plenitude of his own grace, mercy, and love, God is eager and willing to walk through the spiritual graveyards of this sin-darkened world and regenerate those whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 When God commands the dead to live, they live. Lazarus, come forth. By sheer grace, God is the one who performs the act of regeneration. Now next, I want to talk about the means of regeneration. 
God doesn't require the use of means, but he ordinarily uses means to accomplish his work. What do I mean by means? Well, consider a statement like this. I cleaned the floor by means of the soap-filled mop. That's what I mean by means. I cleaned the floor, but I used the means, and instrument, the instrumentality of the soap-filled mop to do it. Now, if God wanted to, he could bring about someone's regeneration by simply willing it without the use of any means. A dead-hearted, sin-enthralled, wicked man could go to bed one evening, and while he is sleeping... God could simply declare that that man be washed of his sin, be given a new heart, and become a holy habitation of the Holy Spirit. And the man wakes up, and all of a sudden, he has a hunger and a thirst and a love for, for God. God could do that, but in fact, God ordinarily uses identifiable means to regenerate, regenerate people while they are not sleeping. In terms of what the Bible teaches, it is not enough to say that a merciful God performs the act of regeneration, we must also say that a merciful God performs the act of regeneration through the proclamation of his word to the sinner. The act of regeneration and the proclamation of the word are not the same thing. The proclamation of the word is declaration of God's truth to the sinner. The act of regeneration is God making that sinner alive to the truth that is being declared to him. The Spirit of God brings sinners to life through the proclamation of the Word of God. There are multiple passages that make this clear. For example, James 1.18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Of his own will he brought us forth, that refers to regeneration, but what means did he use to do this? The word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25. You have been born again. This refers to the act of regeneration. What means did God use to do this? The living and abiding word of God, which is the good news that was preached to you. You have been born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And really, the same point is made in John chapter 3. Uh, because after Jesus calls Nicodemus' attention to the, the necessity and the nature of regeneration, even referring it to it as something mysterious, some mysterious spiritual wind-like operation, uh, the, the, John chapter 3 doesn't leave us to just ponder the mysterious nature of the new birth. Instead, John chapter 3 directs our attention to the cross. Okay, John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's, the, it's the proclamation of the Son of God and his sacrifice upon the cross that the Holy Spirit uses to draw people into Christ. Sixth, we're almost done. Sixth, the result of regeneration. In keeping with the previous point, the immediate and obvious result of regeneration is that the one who is regenerated is captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, captivated by the gospel, captivated by the word of God. Regeneration came about through God's word, which exalts the Lord Jesus Christ, and and thus the, the regenerated heart is now forever bound to the scriptures and to the Christ who is proclaimed and shown through the scriptures. That's the immediate and obvious result of regeneration. But there are other practical, lifelong results of regeneration that we need to be clear about. Just as the mysterious wind is known by its effects, you can hear it, so the the mysterious uh, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is known, made manifest by its effects. You see the results. Um, let, let, me mention, let me mention some of the results. Going back to Ezekiel chapter 36, there can be no doubt that the result of regeneration is obedience. The sinner is cleansed, receives a new heart, and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit And after the Lord declares this profound transformation, he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, in terms of the context of Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, this true obedience is not a form of guilt management. There's a lot of obedience, uh, impure obedience that is all wrapped up in managing one's guilt feelings. Those who attempt to obey out of guilt have not been cleansed. Also, this true obedience is not outward reformation. Those who make an attempt at outward reformation are attempting to control the impulses of their hard and stubborn heart, and that doesn't work. True obedience flows from the new heart, the humble and teachable and moldable heart that God put in there. Finally, this true obedience is not sustained by man's strength, but is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Show me a community of regenerated people, and I will show you a community of people who are growing in grateful, heartfelt, joyful, and deliberate obedience to the Word of God. Show me a religious community of unregenerate people, and I will show you a community of people who are attempting to manage their guilt and reform their sinful hearts in their own strength. It makes no real difference whether the unregenerate community takes the shape of a loosey-goosey progressive religion that denies what the Bible teaches or the shape of a stuffy, legalistic, fundamentalist religion for which their own rules are the answer to everything. In either case, the transforming power of God's grace is absent. And then taking one more look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The very fact that we are his workmanship and that we are created in Christ Jesus echoes the truth of regeneration. A true Christian is not man-made, but God-made. And although we are saved by divine grace and not by our own works, nevertheless we are saved for good works. As Jesus taught that no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit, Luke 6, verses 43 and 44. So you can be sure that when a bad tree-like sinner becomes by God's regenerating power a good tree-like saint, he will begin to bear good fruit and will indeed learn to walk in the good works which have been prepared beforehand. Good fruit doesn't make the tree alive. Good fruit shows that the tree is alive. We also do well to ponder some verses from 1 John. 1 John teaches that those who are regenerated invariably come to reflect God's character in their everyday life. Here's a few passages. 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3, 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I just want to focus on that, on that one statement, his commandments are not burdensome. This statement captures the practical effect of regeneration, that regeneration leads to joyful obedience. Why are God's commandments not burdensome to God's redeemed children? The very next words are in 1 John 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. God's commandments are burdensome to the unredeemed heart. But when a sinner is born of God, he gets a new heart and his love affair with the world is terminated. We are not immediately perfected, of course, and our entire life we have to make war against the passions of the flesh, but regeneration immediately sets us on a new trajectory with a new disposition and desire, and going forward, those who have been born again do truly delight in God's commandments, love one another, and prefer to walk in righteousness. The final result of regeneration and the transformed life that flows from it is that future day when God's redeemed people inherit the kingdom. The New Testament is crystal clear. People's, people's, people whose lives are not transformed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those in bondage to the works of the flesh, no matter what they claim to be or believe, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The opposite of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. And it is those who bear the Spirit's fruit who will reap eternal life, Galatians 6, 8. What is the fruit of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that increasingly characterizes those who have been born of water and the Spirit. The water has washed them from the filth of the flesh, and the Spirit now leads them along the path of righteousness. Last, number seven, I want to say a few things about the significance of the doctrine of regeneration. Number one, in terms of our ministry to the unconverted, we must reject gimmicks and clever techniques. Instead, we must embrace the means that God has appointed. We do indeed make an appeal to people, but it is not a fleshly appeal that we make. The world knows how to manipulate sinners with comfortable allurements and fleshly entertainments. The world knows how to put on a good show, and many religious personalities have followed suit. But it is not to be this way among us. Our calling is not to impress people with allurements, adornments, audiovisual awesomeness, the fine-tuning of the worship atmosphere, or watered-down messages pitched to the world's value system. We ought to conduct our ministry in such a way that if God isn't at work in someone's life, they wouldn't want to be part of this. And what we have, what we have is the message of the cross. Paul says it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Number two, in terms of our mindset about the unconverted, everyone is an improbable and unworthy candidate for God's grace. Therefore, don't write anyone off. <laughs> Everyone is equally improbable, but on the other hand, anyone might be saved. The unconverted churchgoer is in the same impossible fix that the foul-mouthed factory worker and the hardened criminal are in. They are equally lost. And yet, by divine grace, any of them might be saved in an instant at the hearing of the gospel. Therefore, see to it that they hear the gospel. Number three, in terms of what the true church is, our vision for the church's life and ministry must be seen through the lens of regeneration. What is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the work of God. And, and this is how it works. The gospel is proclaimed and people are made alive. And alive people gather together under the worship leader named the Holy Spirit to give praise to God and love one another and hear the scriptures so that their alive hearts might be corrected and directed and trained to always be moving towards the Lord and walking in His ways. And then as the gospel continues to be proclaimed and as our own transformed lives and testimonies 
point to that same gospel. God works through us and through the word that we declare to make more people alive and draw them into the fellowship. That, that's what the true church is. It's the work of God. It's the planting of the Lord. And if it's anything else, if it's just something that we're cooking up in our own wisdom and strength, then it's a complete and total waste of time. Last but not least, in a gathering of 125 people, the odds are high that there are at least a handful of people here who have not been born again. You're still on the outside of God's kingdom. Your eyes are still blind to the glorious realities of the gospel. When you see this church dynamic, worship dynamic, all you can see is what it is culturally or socially or religiously, but you don't see the beauty of God's work who is bringing us about through his word and spirit. And it's no wonder that you see it that way because you have not yet tasted and seen for yourself that the Lord is good. And yet, perhaps at this very hour, in a moment of unusual clarity, you can perceive that you are still in bondage to sin and that you are by nature a child of wrath. But it could be that God, who is rich in mercy, has drawn near to you at this very moment to deliver you. There's a remarkable uh, word in Ezekiel chapter 18. Before the, before the powerful promise of Ezekiel chapter 36 comes the passionate plea of Ezekiel chapter 18 when the Lord makes this appeal to his sinful people. And this is what he says. In Ezekiel 18, verses 30 to 32, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from all, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Now that is stunning to hear the Lord say to his dead-hearted people, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For in Ezekiel chapter 36, those are the very things that God says, I will do. God's got to do it. And yet, it teaches us something very important. God commands us into that which he alone can give. The, the, the command to make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit is designed to break you so that you might cry out, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And there, beneath the Savior's bloody cross, even you might be born again. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would rescue us from any dependence on the arm of the flesh. I pray that we would forsake any dependence on what we can do in our own strength. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are filled and strengthened and ever transformed by the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would awaken sinners to life, that you might put a new song in their heart and bring them into your forever family and have them join us in the worship of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.